Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 128, Sutton Who, The Finding of Raidwald and Rabbits. Maybe. Well, we're definitely going to find rabbits, but I don't know about Raidwald. So, Raidwald, King of East Anglia, Bretwalda. When he's mentioned, if you've heard that name before this show, chances are you heard it in connection with Sutton Who which is possibly his burial site. And Sutton Hoo is one of the most famous archaeological digs in Britain. Just the name conjures up images of the great Anglo-Saxon helmet, with its impressive faceplate and ornate decorations in bronze, iron, and tin. But there's so much more to it than that. And today, we're going to talk about some of what makes Sutton Hoo so special. Our story begins in the late 16th century, when tomb raiders came across the mounds at Sutton Hoo and dug a shaft straight down into Mound 1. They were over 10 feet down into the mound and only inches above the burial chamber. But for some reason, it looks like they stopped and lit a fire. And at that point, it's assumed that the shaft collapsed and the ransacking of the mound ended, leaving the chamber intact. These digs are often connected to Queen Elizabeth's astrologer and alchemist, Dr. John Dee, who might have been given a commission to go find buried treasure in East Anglia. But the reality is that there's no evidence for Dee actually conducting the digs, and all of this might have just been a coincidence. But the point is, based upon the archaeological evidence, in the late 16th century, someone was digging around in Sutton Hoo. And not without reason. The River Devon, which is right next to Sutton Hoo, was probably part of a major trading network during the early Anglo-Saxon period, and settlements would have popped up all along it. While most of them would have been farming communities and the like, there were probably towns where the elite congregated as well, and some have argued that Rendlesham, Melton, Bromswell, and Sutton Hoo may have functioned as political centers for the region. So looking for buried treasure in the area was a fairly reasonable conclusion for the 16th century robbers to make, despite its lack of fame or notoriety. And then, in the early 17th century, 1601 to be exact, Sutton Hoo appears in the written record. That's when John Norden, a cartographer, surveyed the lands of Sir John Stanhope. Looking at his drawings of the land, we see four mounds near the road. And that appearance on the map is significant, because in every map we see from that point forward, we see mounds either straddling the road or just to the south of it. But interestingly, they aren't mentioned in documentary sources. For example, we don't see them used as a marker for determining land boundaries on deeds. However, like I said, the mounds were a regular feature for cartographers. We see four hills in a land survey of the Sutton Parish drawn in 1629, and those hills would have been the mounds, and there they're called Howe Hills. In 1783, in a survey of Suffolk, we see five mounds near a grave field called Sutton Howe. In 1836, we see an ordnance survey that describes them as Tumuli. A couple decades later, in 1860, we have Sutton Hoo's first recorded dig. A mound was opened. It might have been mound two, and two bushels of iron nails were pulled out, but nothing else that we know of, which suggests that it might have been plundered by earlier treasure seekers. So all they had were those nails, and they gave the nails to a local blacksmith. 
I don't know what he did with them. Presumably, he nailed something. And then, in 1889 to 1891, there were further maps that were produced. And now, rather than four or five mounds, there were ten. And if we go to our present day, we now know that there are 18 mounds. The mounds are multiplying. Or not. Probably not. People have just gotten better at recording land features. But despite its presence in maps and the earlier digs that occurred, the land was largely unknown. The lands nearby were plowed, trees were planted, but other than that, nothing much. That is, until 1937. Because it's at that point that Edith Pretty appears on the scene. Edith was the landowner of Sutton Hoo, and, like many people of the time, she was interested in archaeology. She was also a recent widow, with her husband having passed away only three years earlier. And with his passing, she became interested in spiritualism, making regular trips to see a medium in London. Again, this too was a rather common interest among the people of wealth at the time. And it seems that she became interested in what the mounds on her land might contain, both spiritually as well as materially. I say that because there are references to people seeing shadowy figures at the mounds, including a man on a white horse. And it also seems that Edith's own nephew, a dowser, claimed that there was gold underneath the mounds. So Edith met up with Guy Maynard of the Ipswich Museum, and Guy suggested that she contact a local archaeologist named Basil Brown, who worked with the museum. And Edith and Basil quickly decided that they wanted to work together and begin work the following year. So, on June 20th, 1938, Basil arrived on site and was initially overwhelmed by the scale of the mounds. And it's understandable. They aren't minor mounds, and he might have imagined something a bit more manageable, and then was struck with the sheer scope of what he had agreed to do. But he shook off the surprise and began to work out the particulars of the dig. Now, Edith wanted the dig to begin on Mound 1. But after seeing the state of the mound, apparently the western side was pretty banged up, Basil decided to excavate Mound 3 instead. Mound 3 was well-shaped, medium-sized, and in good condition, other than what the rabbits did. Seriously, he mentioned disturbance to the mound caused by rabbits. I love Basil's notes. But, believe it or not, Bugs Bunny is a real problem in archaeology. Anyway, Mound 3. It was only about 5 feet tall and about 85 feet in diameter, so it was probably less intimidating than the neighboring Mound 1. And so Basil set to work, digging trenches and placing them at right angles. And then he found a change in the soil, which he thought was a pit. So he then determined where the center of the pit might be, assuming that that might be where the burial would be placed. And 5 feet below the original ground surface, Basil found some pieces of bone that were placed on some sort of oak platform or tray, and it was approximately 5 foot 6 inches long and just under 2 feet wide. The tray itself was aligned east to west, which is not uncommon with burials from the area. And to the west end of the tray, there were some decorated sheets of bone that seemed like they might have been Roman or Byzantine in style, as well as a bronze lid, chain, and handle for a jug that seems to have been Eastern Mediterranean in nature. So that's really exciting. And with the success of that first dig, Basil moved on to Mound 2, which was a little larger, higher, but also more disturbed. However, he still thought it was preferable to Mound 1, apparently. So Basil decided to dig a trench in from the eastern side. 
At first, he found a couple iron rivets, so he knew he was on the right path. And then he encountered yellow sand, which he took to indicate a burial pit. And that's when Basil's work really began. He eventually excavated a pit that was 20 feet long, 6 feet across, and 5 feet deep. And much like the tray in Mound 3, it was aligned on an east-west axis. During his excavation, Basil found a number of rivets, and upon looking at the state of the dig and the presence of the rivets, he interpreted the mound to be a boat burial. But that isn't an uncontroversial opinion. And later studies have shown that the actual burial was conducted with a burial chamber, and then there was a boat that was just placed on top of it, rather than the body being buried within the boat. So Basil was half right. Now, unfortunately, it seems that the grave itself had been robbed at least once, possibly twice, and all that was left were fragments. For example, the tip of a pattern-welded sword, a silver mount from the mouth of a drinking horn, two bronze gilt mounts, possibly from a shield, a bronze ring, a silver buckle, and then fragments of a glass jug, two iron knives, and a wooden tub. But given the fact that all of this was still present, even though Mound 2 had already been looted, it makes you wonder what he would have found had it not been raided first, doesn't it? And then Basil moved on to Mound 4. And what a letdown that mound must have been. It was small, only 65 feet in diameter, and had been absolutely savaged by rabbits. Yeah, you heard that right. The rabbits thought this place was Shangri-La and had gone to work terraforming it to make it a perfect home for themselves. And not only that, but this mound also showed signs of prior grave robbing. So yeah, Mound 4, not so great. And it really makes you wonder why Basil went for Mound 4 rather than moving on to Mound 1, which is what Edith originally wanted dug up. But whatever. So inside Mound 4, Basil found a 7-foot by 3-foot pit that was about 3 feet deep. And within it, he saw evidence of a cremation burial, meaning burned bone, some sort of game piece, small bronze fragments, and a few fragments of cloth. It looked like it was the cremation burial for a young adult and a horse, maybe wrapped in a cloth and placed in a bronze container. And with that find, they brought the digs of 1938 to a close. But consider this. All three of the mounds were robbed before Edith and Basil set about opening them up. So they had already been plundered, both by tomb raiders, as well as a couple colonies of rabbits that lacked any sense of respect for archaeology. And high-status objects that were connected to the mid-6th and early 7th centuries were still found in all three digs. So think about the wealth that must have been in them originally. And they would have been interred right around the time, or shortly before the time, that we're talking about right now in the show. These could have been burials for Raidwald's dynasty. Or maybe powerful leaders of the community, great thanes or prominent members of the warbands of the East Angles. This stuff is incredible. And also, we're seeing differing types of burials. Not just boat burials, but cremation burials and even burials with horses. And all of this intrigued Edith, so she decided to hire Basil for another round of digs to begin the next year, as the specter of impending war shadowed Europe. And that's something that really should be mentioned. Britain wasn't yet at war with Germany, but things weren't looking good. The memory of the Great War was still fresh, 
and it must have been incredibly nerve-wracking that things were once again starting to get a bit unstable. Germany had already annexed Austria and had occupied the Sudetenland, Italy had taken Ethiopia, Japan was in China. Things were definitely getting a bit out of hand. Who knows how long Britain had before it would get swept up into war. Which would effectively end the possibility of archaeology until the war ended. So Edith and Basil must have felt a significant amount of pressure to get it done. And yet, there were only so many months in the year when the weather would cooperate with them. In many ways, when you look at the pressure, the circumstances, and the narrow window of opportunity to excavate, this seems a bit like a rescue dig. So in the early summer of 1939, Basil returned to Edith's land and asked him which mound she would like him to excavate. Edith apparently pointed to Mound 1, the same mound that she originally wanted him to dig up, and said, what about this? And Basil went about making his preparations. But this time, he wasn't alone. He was assisted by Edith's gamekeeper, William Spooner, and her gardener, John Jacobs. And much like in the prior mounds, Basil started his trench on an east-west axis, aimed right at what he thought the center of the mound was. After several days of digging, signs of disturbance were found. This was significant because Basil's method was to follow signs of disturbance, believing, logically, that it would lead him to the burial. And on the next day, John found an iron rivet while digging. The game was afoot. Basil knew what this meant. It was immediately obvious to him that he was looking at a ship's rivet. Mound 1 might contain a ship burial. And sure enough, only hours later, the end of a ship was found. Things were getting really exciting. But there was a problem. The wood that made up the ship would have decayed over the centuries, leaving only rivets and sand. Sand which had hardened through contact with the wood that it replaced. So what do you do? How do you excavate a boat that has almost entirely vanished, leaving just little traces of it, and mostly only its shadow in the sand? Well, Basil had a plan. He and his assistants dug up the yellow sand and continued until they found patches that were bright orange. Because of the rusting of the rivets, that color indicated that they were getting close to where the planks of the ship were originally. And then they very carefully, quote, crept along rivet by rivet, end quote. I love how he words that. Leaving a light layer of sand atop where the ship would have been in order to protect it from the elements. This was no minor bit of work. We're talking about an epic amount of sand that the three of them pulled out of the mound. And the work was painstakingly slow and careful. After several weeks of digging, the pit was about 40 feet long and almost 15 feet wide. And it started to become clear that this might be a find of significant importance. Maybe even international importance. And Guy Maynard, do you remember him from Ipswich Museum? Well... He started to visit regularly, keeping an eye on the dig for obvious reasons. And it was about at this point that they found evidence of the first attempt to raid Mound 1. That shaft from the 16th century that we spoke about at the start of this episode, with its layer of burned soil and signs of disturbance. But of particular interest to Basil was the fact that the disturbance stopped. Basil began to get quite hopeful. 
Might it be possible that this mound was left undisturbed and free from the ravages of the grave robbers and disrespectful rabbits? Well, now he had all the more reason to be extra careful. And besides, there was a significant risk of sand falling back into the pit and damaging the dig, or even killing he or one of his helpers. In fact, Basil was nearly buried by one such collapse. Our story very nearly ended right here, with Basil being buried under 10 tons of sand, right about at the same point where the 16th century grave robbers had stopped, actually. But luckily, he was okay, and he had learned an important lesson about safety. So naturally, he widened the pit in order to avoid anything like that happening again. Meanwhile, Guy Maynard had decided that things were getting pretty serious, and that the dig might benefit from a team that consisted of more than a local archaeologist, gamekeeper, and gardener. So he contacted Charles Phillips, an experienced archaeologist, and invited him to the site. It was becoming very clear that this dig was bigger than Basil's ragtag team. And on the 6th of June, Charles arrived, and was immediately impressed by the scale of the find. And pretty soon, he took over with Charles heading up the dig and a small group of talented and experienced colleagues being brought out to assist. And unfortunately, Basil, not to mention John and William, were somewhat forced into a backseat position. And you know, I'm not really a fan of that. In records, Basil is sometimes referred to as an amateur archaeologist, but that's not the case. He was a professional archaeologist. He was paid. And not only that, but he was clearly very intelligent, having also taught himself astronomy as well as a few languages. And he had demonstrated that he was perceptive, decisive, and careful in the field. But he was also a farmer's son, and from the country, and had a country education. And some scholars have argued that, given the time frame that we're looking at, that class might have played a role in the initial decision to have Basil replaced by Charles, rather than Charles just coming down and consulting. But regardless, the continuing dig didn't take very long, and by June 15th, they reached the burial, and immediately stopped, and continued excavating the remainder of the ship. And by the 10th of July, the entire ship was excavated, all except the burial chamber. And how exciting must that have been? Basil wrote about it, and you can sense his anticipation in his writing. He wrote about how the bronze sheets on the eastern end of the chamber, when tapped, gave out a hollow sound. What was in there? It must have been electrifying, and also agonizing, considering that he had to be patient and just wait. But on July 10th, the wait was over. Basil, Charles, and Basil's colleague, Bert Fuller, began excavating the burial chamber. And actually, it's kind of nice to see that Basil was involved at this point. And from the record, it's clear that Charles and others had come to respect his intellect and skill. Now, the excavation was a slow process. Even simply removing the sand that covered the chamber took ages. Though to be fair, it was pretty start and stop for the first few days. Why? Well, I'll let you guess. It's an excavation in Britain. So what do you think might have happened? Yeah, rain and lots of it. But their work continued, and nine days later, Stuart Piggott's arrived, and the lifting and recording of the chamber really began, all despite the elements and the fact that they were ill-equipped and underfinanced. 
It's true that they were supported by Edith, but for the scale of the find, they simply weren't prepared. I mean, they didn't even have the proper packing materials, and they had to just cobble things together as best as they could. So they gathered tobacco boxes and grocery cartons and wrapped objects in newspapers like they were moving into a new home and used moss from the surrounding areas as cushioning materials. And I think that's my favorite part about this dig, how they were just doing whatever they could to make it happen. And actually, despite their limited resources, they did an excellent job of keeping everything protected. And they found some incredible items right away. The Anastasius Dish Complex, which they thought was a shield at first, a group of drinking horns, traces of cloth, the tip of a sword, and a gold cloisonné pyramid. This was incredible, and it needed to be photographed. Photography was still relatively new at this point, but these items really should be photographed in situ. And yet, it would be almost a week before a photographer would arrive. And it was his work that gives us the tantalizing images of the dig. But due to the delay of his arrival, unfortunately, we don't have any photographs of the excavation of the great sword with its gold and garnet fittings, nor of the belt fittings and the buckle. But things were running along pretty smoothly. And everything came out. And then the Science Museum came out in August to record the structure of the ship. And they pulled it off just in time. Because on September 3rd, 1939, war was declared on Germany. But that didn't entirely stop what was happening with Sutton Hoo. Life went on, regardless of the war. And an inquest needed to be held to determine if the finds at Sutton Hoo were a treasure trove and what was to be done with it. And so in September of 1939, an inquest was held. And everything, the ships, the treasure contained in the burial chamber... Everything, all of it, was Edith's property. She was now the sole owner of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, archaeological finds in Britain. And she donated all of it to the British Museum. And Winston Churchill was impressed by this. Which doesn't surprise me one bit, because he loved history as much, if not more, than we do. And so upon discovering this, he offered to grant Edith the Order of the British Empire but she declined. Why? Because that's how Edith rolled. Now in the next episode, we're going to talk about what was found, why it's important, and what it might mean. After all, it just might be the burial chamber for our friend, Raidwald, the Brettwalda. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Tumblr. Just go to britishhistorypodcast.tumblr.com. And, of course, you can join us in the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click Get Involved and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening.